0: Season three, episode four, we're almost at the halfway point entitled and now his watch has ended. Pat, I'm not going to lie. I had a little bit of a you moment where I thought that this episode was, this is one of those episodes where I thought it was going to be really awesome going in and then coming out of the other side, I'm like, oh, this might not have been as good as I remember. There's a few awesome sequences in this episode, but overall- I don't know. What, what, what do you remember about this episode before we get into it?
1: You know, Dom, I, I totally agree with you. Like my when my my watch was ended, <laughs> you know, at the end of this episode, <laughs> there it I, is. I was I was glad that. to see the credits. You know, I, I hopefully the Talking TV's family sees it the same way. But uh, listen, I agree with you. Cool sequences, but like man, I I was ready for the credit sequence. Yeah,
0: you're you would be both all of that and more. Stay tuned, people. Season three, episode four, entitled, and now his watch has ended, aptly titled after the Night's Watch phrase for whenever they lose a brother in the course of the action. But I think it's got a little bit of a double meaning just as far as, you know, our lives just in general this past weekend. We're in October. We've got a lot of movies and just media content that has come back. We've got, oh, man, we, we both had to sit through one shitbox Halloween movie. Uh, you watched the Ridley Scott's new movie, The Last Duel which oh man you, hey
1: listen the last duel is is definitely uh, up there above Halloween so I uh, recommend a lot of
0: things are up above uh, <laughs> Halloween right about
1: now yeah uh, I would recommend man. that over watching the latest Lasher film look uh, Chris and I podcasted about
0: that this morning and you know it's bad when it's one of those podcasts where we're legitimately struggling to find something hard to say and about the best amount of praise that I can heat that movie's way is eh the kills were good you know but we're not here to talk about that I already wasted enough breath on that god awful movie we're here to talk about Game of Thrones Pat it also doesn't help the Succession Season 3 is premiering tonight, but I'm watching that afterwards. So, Pat, what do you remember about this episode? Because this is, I think, I really think that this is like my first major case as far as this being one of those episodes that I remember really, or at least think I remember really fucking loving when I watch it the first couple times that I watched this show, because it has probably three of the best sequences of like three of the best like character cap-off arcs for moments that happen in Season 3 just in general. But the problem is, is that those moments all happen at the end of the episode. And the problem is there's still a full like 30 to 40 minutes of episode of episode to watch beforehand. And a lot of that stuff, some of it is cool and there's some great dialogue, but a lot of it is really fucking boring up until that point.
1: Yeah, a lot of expletives there, Dom. Maybe you should back off the uh, adult talk here. But, uh, <laughs> you know, what I'm going to say is uh, I agree with you. Like a lot of it is like just simmering. You know, a lot of things are simmering and it's waiting till those big moments happen. Um, and, and, you know, not to say that, uh, you know, the whole idea of the Hound being challenged to a duel, you know, like that whole sequence with Arya calling him out for running down the butcher's boy. Like that scene is pretty dope, awesome. um, to incredible. be honest with you. Great, and, and great
0: character interaction. Like,
1: like Arya just... really starts to gain confidence and really, you know, start to be uh, a character that is growing into their own. So really fantastic there. Um, You know, what else happens in this, Uh, you know, um, ah, man. Big
0: three moments for me, Arya calling out the Hound and yeah. the reintroduction to Don Darian after his initial introduction in season one when he was yeah. played by a different actor. That's number one. Number two, the Night's Watch kind of rebellion and cracking down on Crasters. That's still one of oh, my yeah. favorite sequences listen, in general. Listen,
1: like, the whole thing that goes down Crasters is amazing. Amazing, like,
0: amazing cap you know, off the, to that arc.
1: Yeah, the fact is Mormont really, um, you know, underestimated On un- just end. Uh, and he's going to have to be defended at some point. And luckily, you know, Jon Snow... Uh, convinces the Night's Watch to do so in a later season.
0: Right, and moment number three, obviously, is—I mean, it's the sequence at the end. It's Daenerys bringing on the Unsullied, and then just drove on the first instance of her actually using the dragons in action, oh, yeah, not yeah. like her- not, not like in Karth. Like it's actually, it's really well done. It's really justified. It's amazingly well filmed. Yeah, it's funny she, she's I
1: proving done- her advisors wrong, right? Yeah. They they kind of questioned her the last time that we saw her, you know, in that storyline, and basically she proves to them right there, then and there, that she knew what she was doing. She was manipulating the situation so that she could just scream Chakraris and burn the master up. Incredible, and,
0: in- inc- man, incredible now, cap off. To, now she has an uh, army. Yeah. Uh, incredible cap off to just an, an amazing three sequences. But so this is the second episode that's directed. By, so uh, sorry, actually, this is the first episode that's directed by uh, series mainstay Al Graves, who would direct a significant amount of the episodes in both season three and four. He famously directs this episode of the next episode, kiss by fire. He directs uh, the episode where Joffrey dies next season, the Lion in the Rose, as well as the episode that is the centerpiece for the battle between the um the mountain the Gregor the Mountain Clegane and Oberyn Martell next season the Mountain and the Viper as well as the season four finale uh, this episode is also directed written once again by Benioff and Weiss and the thing about this episode is it seems to be that weird instance where it is both wrapping up a lot of the arcs that have been established from the first half of the season and also from the last episode while also serving as the transition point, which is really weird because usually what we, because we sort of got this in the last season as well with episode four in the last season, right, Garden of Bones. But the whole thing about that one is that one I think served as like this really nice, smooth transition into like where the rest of the season was going to go. Whereas this one, it almost feels like, okay, we're kind of binding our time, binding our time, binding our time, more talking, more talking, and then boom, all the action happens at the end. And it's like, oh, okay. And Eric, just kind of to address your point about this, I wouldn't say the word is boring. It's just a part of the, like, well, look, we made comments on the fact that, like, the King's Landing stuff this season has been very slow. Very deliberately paced, you know. This episode. The other thing too about this episode is it it doesn't have all of our focus characters. Like John's not in this episode. Rob's not in this episode. We don't. We still don't. Really don't get that much with Stannis. Stannis pretty much sits out the first half of this season with these episodes of a few key scenes. But it's like the thing I, I remember, and this is really where we're getting into it. I feel like now is Storm of Swords really started to focus on the secondary characters in a way that the first two books did not. And I, we really start to feel it in this episode. And it's not that it's bad per se, but it's not yet at a point where we figured out like, okay, which one of these secondary characters are really going to be interesting and fascinating to watch. Which ones of them are just kind to be there, you know, to just buy, you know, to just take up time. So, uh, I, I guess we should just get started, but before we do get started, yeah, well, this-
1: well, to, you know, you brought up Eric's comment in the right. uh, you know chat there. And for the most part, I, you know, I don't necessarily think that this is boring if you look at it from an analytical point of view. Uh, but for the most part, like, you know, this is like, you know, third, fourth time that I've seen this episode. You know, it's like I'm basically, uh, you know, have uh, started binging some of the later seasons at the, you know, and um you know you know how fast paced uh, yeah. seasons 7 yeah. and 8 become it, it's one of those things where like the show is more economical later on in later seasons um, so maybe from my perspective, my lens,, uh, this season's still part of the slow burn. You're not getting um, you know action pack scene after action pack scene after action pack scene. Uh, maybe that's just you know, sort of uh, the perspective of of what I'm used to binging some of the later seasons at this point. But um you know, for the most part, yeah, this is definitely still a lot of setup. Um, which for the third season of the show, you would expect like a lot of the, the setup to, to have been rendered and, you know, some, some more action to take place. Uh, but I, I don't think, you know, we get that steady stream of action until, uh, you know, probably season four. Season four is when, uh, things really pick up and, and almost every episode, um, you know, there's still some lulls here and there but like for the most part you get some uh, consistent bangers from season 4 onwards
0: yeah the interesting thing about Game of Thrones is Game of Thrones as a whole is that Game of Thrones aside from just being the pop culture beast that it is Game of Thrones happened right when TV was in another transition period, right? Because near the end of Game of Thrones run is when you started to see the streaming services really start to pick up and really start to, like, you saw the transition out of the prestige TV era that Game of Thrones kind of capped off and transition into more of the streaming era. You know, more quick hits, more, you know, shorter episode content, more hyper-focused, more action happening in every episode. You know, we started to be a lot more stringent about uh, and less forgiving towards the long form setup stuff as and more so towards like, okay, what can you give us kind of in the moment? And I, and it's kind of interesting to see how Game of Thrones reflects that because it, those earlier seasons in comparison to some of those later breakneck pace episodes, it's really fascinating to kind of witness just, you know, seeing that transition. So the only thing that I wanted to talk about kind of before we got into the bulk of the episode, because there's a lot of plot that happens in certain sections of this episode, is the one scene with Bran in the beginning, it happened so briefly that you could almost like cut it from the episode and you wouldn't even realize it. But it's Bran having yet another dream about the Raven, right? He's running through the woods. Jojen's in the dream with him this time. Jojen tells him this time he's got to find it. He climbs up the tree to see the Raven. Catelyn comes out from behind a branch. Obviously, this is all a dream, but it's the whole thing where Catelyn is shaking him, pushing him off the branch. It's obviously supposed to be symbolic of the fact that, oh, you know, Bran's going to pursue this, but at what cost, at what expense, what is he going to lose? along the way right and I guess I, I I guess the thing that annoys me is this is the point where I kind of my brain is starting to get into that mode of oh this is kind of pissing me off how awesome the setup is only for how it pays off later on you know I don't oh, know because yeah it,
1: listen the brand storyline like I think we talked about it plenty yeah. of times where uh, it is such a slow burn it is really cool love everything about it and then all of a sudden it's just it up like it he literally is not even nothing. in a whole.
0: Se- He's not even in a whole season of the show. They just sit out season five because they're like, oh yeah, Bran wasn't in that section. We don't really know what to do with him there. We're just gonna cut him out, just in general, you know. And so like, I don't know, like this that one sequence. It's like, oh, this is gonna be that one. This is where it really starts, where we will get like these one scene check-ins with these characters that are just ultimately gonna go nowhere, I think. But other than that, like I said, there is a, not, not again not to complain too much, but there is like a decent amount of like good stuff in this. Like our first arc with the Riverlands, Jamie and Brienne don't get as much screen time in this episode ultimately, but there's this really the opening scene I think is really really awesome as far as like how it continues from the, the closing shot of the last episode where they're, oh, yeah. they're continuing their journey towards Heron Hall. Jamie's like just down in the dumps. He's got the hand strapped around his, you know, they got the hand literally hanging around his neck as a reminder of what he's lost. Well, he I
1: was, would imagine he lost a lot of blood too. So yeah, like he's, he's probably, probably like, wheeling from the injury and right. you know, so he's depressed. He's basically, you know, has been injured. They, they probably quarterized that wound. Uh, he's also, I, I think at this point they talked, uh, Brianne and him talk about the whole, you know, fact that he was, uh, you know, saved her, uh, from, you know, unfortunate, uh, assault. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things where like the scene is Jamie tries, uh, to escape or at least try to fight back, uh, when he falls off his horse. And, you know, essentially he can't do it. Like, obviously, uh, he's uh, too handicapped at this point to be able to uh, fight at his former glory. Uh, And he's basically threatened and said, hey, if you ever try to do this again, we'll take your other hand.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's I think it's kind of an interesting scene where it starts off. You think that it's just going to be another feigned escape attempt by Jamie um instead like he, his whole thing is he's trying to get water like he legitimately like is having a hard time standing and then friggin', uh what's it? first they pour the water on him then Locke gives him actual horse piss to drink and then he manages to grab the one guy's sword and almost fights his way out it shows it it gives you it gives you that one brief moment of hope we are like oh man is, is jamie gonna make it out of this one you know because he's um what's it called because e- even without his main fighting hand he's still like Almost for, even though the soldiers are clearly playing around with him, he almost like clearly shows like, yeah, he can still fight before a kind of knocks him out, you know, kind of bruises fighting spirit. And it transitioned into this awesome scene that happens later on. It's one of those scenes that I keep forgetting about whenever I watch it, but it, it's so, it's honestly, it's so good. It's, it's probably one of the best, like kind of most low key forgotten scenes between Jamie and Brienne where they're sitting around the fire later on. And she's like, what are you doing? He's just like dying. <laughs> And then she's like, wow, so you lost the one thing that you think defines you. You actually have to be down in the dirt with the rest of us who get shit like the valuable shit taken from us all the time. You actually have to be one with us with the commoners. And your first thing to do is to give up and die. You sound like a woman. And. It's so crass. It's so unexpected. Jamie's probably never heard anything like that in his life, but it's exactly the kind of kick in the pants that he needs in order to like, kind of show that, like, yeah, he's not out of the fight yet. You know, it, it's so awesome the way that that seems written. And it, it's again, it's, it's, it's insane because. Yeah.
1: And no, I agree with you. And it's what, it's one of those things like watching the later seasons, um, you know, just how Jamie and Braun interact with each other, uh, later on when braun is trying to get like you know lands and castles and titles and, and whatnot um, you know Jamie sort of basically uses the same sort of language you know hey listen it's like you just do what I tell you and those things will come you know <laughs> and it's yeah. it's one of those things where there becomes this second dairy way of looking at things no matter how complicated the political situation gets. Um, there is sort of this like crass, like this is the facts of life type of reality. And a lot of the characters, you know, Jamie, Braun, you know, Brienne, etc., cetera, uh, you know, uh, b- basically buy into this lingo and start talking about it. And I think that's part of what makes the show really good is the fact that, you know, no matter who's in power, um, you know, people really do know how, you know, uh, bad the situation is, uh, how wrong the situation is, you know, and it's, it's to a certain degree, it's like there's nothing we can do about it uh until we can, until an opportunity comes, you know, upon uh us. So it, it's one of those things where um, you know, this type of language, this this scene, uh really keeps it real in this world. And I think that's one of the benefits of this show is that they kind of continue uh, to do that throughout the seasons
0: yeah absolutely it's 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 an incredible scene like i said we, we don't spend too much time with them in this episode but that that one scene is in like oh man this is this is one of those scenes for the ages. so i want to come back to the aria scene a little bit because i kind of want to focus aria and with like the last batch of like really awesome storylines that we have to cap off the episode the only other quick storyline that i want to check in is the other storyline happening in the north which again it's really quick but again, it is significant because, again, it's the payoff to what happened last episode where last episode Theon is freed by Ramsay who makes him think that he's working with his sister. They uh, take him on this wild goose chase, right? They're they're walking around the woods. They're talking. Theon's still putting on the bravado face. Ramsay makes out this pretty... Pretty well intricate backstory and really well thought out. I'm like, damn, how long has he been thinking about that? Like he had to have he had to have like been, been working on that for quite a little bit. Or who knows? He may just be that good of an improv artist. He basically says, makes up this whole story of this whole made-up backstory about how he was a boy growing up on Pike. His dad brought him out the day that Theon got sent away to the north and everything. And he's so good at his delivery that Theon buys it, hook, line, and Singer. I'm just in hindsight, it's one of those things where you're like, damn, Ramsey Snow. Expert torturer, expert hound taker, and expert li- an expert liar. Like that is again, it very slowly but intricately laying the seeds of just to how good of liars and and backstabbers the Boltons are. You know, it brings it back to the castle. Theon has no idea where he is. Right? He again, he had no idea yeah, where he yeah. was. He spent the last god only knows how many months strapped to that stupid friggin a uh, wooden flayed man. This know?
1: is one of the greatest scenes ever because as soon as they walk into the room, uh, you it know, it
0: becomes immediately get, apparent. Like, yeah, you up. get,
1: you get the giant X and, and Ramsey smiling ear to ear. And right. essentially he's like, he escaped and I caught him. And immediately a bunch of uh, soldiers pounce on him. And, uh, you know, he's screaming, you know, uh, at the top of his lungs um, you know that the torture is is going to continue, uh, because you know at the very end of this sequence, Theon realizes that he's been duped, and you know it's just part of the torture, and he's about to endure a lot more pain. Um, although at, at at this moment he probably does not expect uh, the type of pain uh, that we're going to see in the next uh, episode, or, or maybe even yeah, two.
0: well not next not next episode, but definitely right? in the next it, couple. It's, yeah, it, it's coming up. It's coming. You know, oh, it's and, a- coming.
1: It's, 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 Let, let's, let's just say that
0: Jamie's not the only one who loses a valuable bodily commodity this season.
1: Well, as they put it later in this series, uh, you Theon's know, lost
0: ra- his favorite toy.
1: Yeah. Ramsey sends the letter and the box, uh, and, and said, Hey, you know, rant. Uh, uh, Theon has lost his favorite, uh, f- favorite toy. Um, which is, you know, it, it's, uh, man, so, so, so uh, gruesome and yeah. so, evil of of Ramsey Bolton, uh, the way he words this and the way he taunts, uh, you know, uh, basically the Greyjoys at this point.
0: Yeah. it's At this point, it's just, it's just a matter of, it's like, okay, so we know that he's just, he's just flexing. Like Ramsey is not even doing this because he, because he has to, in order to like show that like the North is not lying down to the iron board, he's just doing this because he wants to, because this is the stuff that he loves doing. This is the stuff that he relishes in. This is something for whatever reason, again, it just, it, it gets him off for whatever reason. So, well,
1: well, it has to do with the, the, you know, fact that the Baltans believe in fear and striking fear into their enemies. And, the fact is, you know, them sort of, you know, um, doing bodily harm to one of the the family members and sending the part to the other, uh, you know, to the other family, um, yeah. members, I, I it's one think- of those things that it's all about, uh, you know, fear and throwing them off their game. Uh, and it all comes to a head at the battle of the bastards. When, uh, Sansa basically explains to John, like, Hey, don't let him get in your head. Don't, don't and let that's him, exactly what John does. Yeah, yeah, don't let him do you know make you uh, do what he wants you to do, and you know exactly it's it's so Ramsey, um, you know from this moment early on in the series, relatively uh, you know in season three, all the way up until uh, season six with the battle of the bastards, you know, um, you know he basically is manipulating people and getting them to uh, really fight on his terms and you know it's it's one of his strong suits although unfortunately uh, he does get outsmarted in the end
0: yeah well but again not but not by on have on behalf of John though for me the big takeaway from this scene is not anything to do with Ramsey though because I feel like a lot of the stuff has probably, probably already been pretty established as far as how the Boltons go and like obviously this is kind of just the fulfillment of it for me the big takeaway is the moment with theon which is where theon has this moment where Again, he's still putting on the bravado. He's still trying to be the Ironborn, trying to say, oh, I took Winterfell because I would have had no other choice. My father would have only had me raiding fisherman villages. How could I ever be like Rob, whatever, whatever. He's still continuing with that bravado. And then he finally breaks down and he finally lets the real person out. He's like, I, I kind of had, you know, first when he tells Ramsay, uh, and again, it's a it's a very quick but brief but very telling scene because this is where Ramsay finds out, oh shit, Bran and Rickon Stark are still alive. We still might actually have a problem to worry about. Um, what's it called? Uh, well, Once he finds out that the boys that Theon killed were not indeed Brandon Rickon, but were instead two farm boys. But the other big thing here is he admits is like, yeah, I, I, I betrayed my real father because Ned was more of a father to me than Balon ever was. You know, and it's like it's kind of like self-reckoning moment. It's like everyone thinks that like, oh, Theon spends the next two you know, however many seasons it is, like kind of worrying about until he has that moment with John in season seven, that really, really awesome moment. But no, he he has that moment of clarity first before he's kind of like you know loses it, loses his way even more, just in general. And I I thought that was really kind of refreshing, and it's like okay, it was nice to see that at the, at the very least, at the very least, he had some reckoning, some understanding before things just. Oh, man, before they just got so much worse for him just in general. But, uh, yeah, so next we have King's Landing, and we have a lot of trudging to get through in King's Landing because the stuff here is very slow but very deliberate, and there are a lot of very specific seeds that are placed here that all come into play and later on as far as how the relationship between the Lannisters and the Tyrells is going to go. And it, all surprisingly, it revolves around Varys which is a nice kind of surprising change of pace. Usually a lot of the King's Landing stuff is around Tyrion or Cersei or Tywin or Joffrey um, or in this case the Tyrells, the newest additions, obviously, to the King's Landing family or Littlefinger. Obviously, Littlefinger is you know, progressively taking more and more of a backseat since season one. But now we really get to focus on Varys. And we learn a lot about Varys in this episode in ways that we haven't before. I think this episode in particular is what really establishes where Varys truly just lie as obviously the subject which has uh, been murky right? the last couple episodes.
1: The, the main scene in this uh, whole entire episode is uh, him prying open the box and, oh, and talk bad. and so talking awesome. to Tyrion, right? So he's basically, awesome. he's telling him the whole idea of like, I don't believe in magic anymore. And so, you know, you can't imagine how relieved I was to right. fight Stannis and the, the red witch and all this type of stuff. And it's like, you know, he explains the whole story about, you know, how he, I believe he was sold. Right. And, and, Um, you know, his, his captive decide to like cut him up for, for fun. Um, and he talks about how he's, he's waited all these years for revenge. And as soon as he gets the box open, it's like, well, here it is. This is, this is my moment. Um, I had, you know, the person that I've been uh you know uh basically desiring re- revenge upon uh crated up and shipped over to king's landing and now i get to finally have my uh you know moment of joy it's an <laughs> awesome
0: know? moment because it establishes kind of who Varys is his character where Varys, again there's a reason why he has this constant back and forth enmity with little finger because the two of them essentially have kind of the same backstory they're kind of opposite sides of the same coin they're both relatively, grew up relatively lesser off, Littlefinger obviously from a lesser house that nobody really knows or cares about and Varys literally as a poor kid in the streets of, um. which which one did he say, which city did he say he was from? Lee, Smear, one of the two, mm-hmm. I don't remember which one of the three cities he was from, both kind of had to work and claw their way up and now hold extremely coveted positions of prominence right in the court but because they came from that, they, they, they didn't come from the place of royalty because they didn't come from these great houses they have an understanding of the the common people that a majority of the other high lords of Westeros, like even people like Robert Baratheon and Ned Stark would never have ultimately, you know, they understand the way that the common people think, and as a result, it kind of gives them a political leg up, an, a, a, an advantage over the rest of the lords and, and ladies in the kingdom, and, what, and it's one of the reasons why they're kind of able to, like, circumnavigate around to all the different houses in order to, like, kind of continue to play their games ultimately, and continue to survive in the longer throughout the show. It's something that I never really picked up on while I was reading the books, but it's something definitely that the show kind of helped fill in for me, because Varys, Varys is all over the place playing games. He is, he's talking, he's talking to Tyrion, obviously. I, 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 Tyrion, actually, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that's really his only scene in that episode. Next thing you know, he's talking to Roz, um, you know, trying to figure out more so what Littlefinger's up to. And Roz, again, proves to be very, very adept at, at, at helping him and officially proves uh, to Varys when Varys was um, unsure as to whether Littlefinger was still interested in Sansa. Roz basically confirms yeah, it it's I- like...
1: I think this scene with Roz is, you know, obviously it does have the plot points. You know, uh, Roz is giving Varys information, uh, but it's also another fun scene. Like, it, it's basically uh, playing oh, yeah. off the whole the, the Padraic thing. The
0: thing. You know, shows, uh, even Varys is confused. He's like, are we sure yeah. we're talking about the same paid here? I was like, oh, yes, Yeah. are still doing it. And,
1: and then uh, I think Varys goes... Uh, didn't L- Littlefinger get upset that there wasn't any money? And, and Roz <laughs> explains uh, that he's too busy to even care. Yeah, and it, it's one of those love, things where you
0: continue to It's like wow, the, the girls wouldn't be secretive, and she said he was the best they've ever had, and they've had a lot of men. I'm like wow, way wait, to wait, just keep rubbing it in. It's like we get it. He's gifted.
1: Yeah, and you know, I, that's a running joke for the rest of the series. Every time Podrick uh, meets <laughs> up with these characters like Braun and, and stuff, right. but uh, I, I think ultimately, you know, uh, using the whole Podrick thing is basically to make sure that the audience does not see. Uh, the death of Raz is coming. Right. Because in this yeah. sequence, she's saying that, oh, Littlefinger didn't really notice. So like he's not really paying attention. He's got bigger fish to fry, um, you know, so that that gives a sense that this whole conversation between Raz and Varys is going, you know, under the radar. And ultimately in the end, you know, we, we know where Raz's uh, storyline ends um you know so it, it's one of those things where like yeah little finger might make you believe that he's not involved That's one of his skills is that, you know, he he might be uh, playing the game, uh, but you might not even know that he, uh, this is something on his radar, that he's making these moves. Uh, And I I think that's what ultimately will show how dangerous he is um, as we go through uh, these episodes.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's continued in the next couple scenes, obviously, that Varys has with the Tyrells. Again, like there's a lot of stuff that happens in the King's Landing stuff, even though it is very deliberately paced, which is that, again, we're continuing the seeds of like these political political games that we're seeing with the Lannisters and the Tyrells it's so interesting to see like how the King's Landing stuff has played when they're not like in like active like kind of panic mode uh, like they were last season where you, again it's like the complete opposite where Ned Stark in season one was in King's Landing had no freaking clue how to navigate around had no idea what he was doing and because we pretty much spent all the time with him Sansa and Arya we really didn't get to know a lot of the political leanings of King's Landing the way that we did last season now this season we know, the Ty- we know the Lannisters. We know what they're all about. We have the scenes with the Tyrells. We see kind of the games that they're playing back and forth, obviously. First, that whole sequence within the Sept, right, with the discussion between Olenna and Cersei, while Joffrey is just showing off everything to Marjorie Margaery. Marjorie's continuing to, uh, you know, play to Joffrey's every uh, him and will, you know, but Cersei's continuing to prove very, very um, suspicious of the Tyrells, especially when Marjorie manages to get Joffrey to actually go out and confront the common people in front of the Great Sept of Baelor, something that she obviously, you know, wants does not want to happen because she wants to keep for protected because the last time they were in front of the people of King's Landing, they wanted to, you know, murder them all because they were starving. Then you obviously have the scene where Varys visits Olena. and it's very interesting to see where the, where, where the seeds pop up because the interesting thing is that were the Tyrells planning on snatching Sansa out from the Lannisters' grasp before Varys broached the idea with Olena? We don't know, but... The interesting thing that happens here again after a hilarious introduction, one of my favorites. Once again, just to see with Olenna roasting one of her many granddaughters and nieces, basically saying, basically roasting the the, the purpose and relevancy of their entire house. is like growing strong. If I have to see another golden rose, I might lose it, you know? And she kind of gives a comparison of how Tyrell to the rest of the house is like, wow, kraken's and direwolf, big, strong beast, but a golden rose. No one fears that. No one takes that seriously.
1: Well, it's also about the phrasing, right? Like right. Uh, cool, cool sayings, like winter is coming. Winter right? is coming. You know? So yeah. Hear me roar. It, it's one of those things where they're, they're basically uh, playing into Uh, the material, you know, the, obviously the, the show and how it's written, uh, at the same time, they're really making this character, you know, uh, you know, just like intelligent, just self-aware, just realizing, um, you know, where their position is and like what they have to do to really get a leg up on their competition.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so Varys comes in. I, I just, I love the, I love, I love this interaction. It's just, it's incredible. Every single scene that Diana Ring is in in this entire show, she just owns. Absolutely, 100%. Like, it, she even already makes enemies with Cersei when I don't even think she's quite yet at the point of just straight up insulting Cersei the way that she is in later Z. Since, what? <laughs> Freaking, she comes in and embarrasses us, like, the city is made brighter by you so by my presence. Is that your attempt to seduce me? And she and he's like, I don't know if you call it that. And he's like, oh, no, seduce away. It's been so long. But then again, I don't know what happens if, you know, what you get when you bump the decrepit up against the not-existent. I'm just like. God damn. I'm like, dude, would she, well, how, just how, is she just that good of an actress that she's able to deliver those lines with just absolutely like no pause or a doubt or hesitation whatsoever? It's, it's incredible. But so they have this walk and talk ultimately, you know, they're, they're feeling each other out. You know, Olenna doesn't quite trust or know Varys very well. Varys is kind of throwing himself out there, making himself a little bit vulnerable, you know, bringing up his thing with Littlefinger, how dangerous he thinks Littlefinger is. I find that ironic too, because again, Olena is so smart that she ends up kind of taking advice from Varys and Littlefinger, where she takes takes Varus' advice, ultimately, for Loras Tyrell to marry Sansa and get Sansa away from the Lannisters, ultimately, because he thinks that the Lannisters are getting too much power. And obviously, he he knows, everyone knows, Rob is is on the chopping block. It's a matter of when, not if he's losing. So he knows that Sansa is ultimately next. There's a reason why the Lannisters still want to keep her so close, even though she's not marrying Joffrey anymore, because she's still very valuable in that sense. The Tyrells have definitely picked up on that in some sense, even if they haven't necessarily put their plans in motion yet. There's a reason why marjorie has been getting so close to Sansa so recently. And Varys ultimately kind of plants the seed. But Olena also later teams up with Littlefinger, to assassinate Joffrey. So, like, Elena's another one where, again, she she is on no one's side but her own. She she plays the game exactly in order to benefit her, and the seed is planted here, and it's continued in the next scene with Marjorie continuing to buddy a buddy up with Santa, and she even broaches the idea. Again, it's very intricate. It's All completely dialogue-based, but it's very interesting kind of how all the seeds are placed, unfortunately. And it's ironic, too, because Littlefinger is the one who kind of unravels the whole thing by leaking the Tyrell plot to the Lannisters and ultimately forcing their hand as far as them creating the arranged marriage between Tyrion and Sansa later on this season.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things where um, just, you know, watching the characters exist in King's Landing and realize that they're at a stalemate and that, you know, for the most part, they're just trying to do whatever they can to edge the other family out. Um, you know, this is very interesting to watch over these episodes, and um, really, it, it kind of continues for the next couple seasons. You know, it evolves into the whole, um, you know, uh, what is it? The the religious order. and yep. you know, all the sparrows. Was, yeah, how uh, Cersei sort of... Br- involves them and then it kind of backfires and, uh, both families have to sort of deal with that. Um, so there is from this moment up until, you know, um, you know, that sort of explosion, I believe it's in season six, um, you know, basically this, uh, back and forth, just this minor tit for tat type of, uh, action between the two families. And it's, all very subtle it's all very like um you know backroom deal type of uh you know scenarios and you know it just lasts for the next couple of seasons like you know the Terrells and the Lannisters are trying to get a leg up on one another for the next couple of seasons for
0: sure yeah absolutely there's only one other real scene that I wanted to tackle in the King's Landing stuff this episode and that's the meeting between Cersei and Tywin which is again another small fleeting moment but again a some brilliant character work, some brilliant writing here. Where Cersei is trying to accomplish two things here. She's trying to voice to Tywin that she can actually be like legit, like a legitimate like help, kind of help to him, and that he should take her more seriously. And also that, um, what's it called? And also, obviously, voicing her suspicions about the Tyrell. Obviously, we know that Tywin has the same thoughts, obviously. But Tywin also, again, is a lot smarter than Cersei and understand that they still need to play up to the Tyrells, both because of the advantage that they provided them in the fight against Stannis, and also because, you know, they're kind of, you know, in desperate need financially for the Tyrells. Because even though Tywin hasn't revealed it yet, uh, the the, the Lannisters are not doing so well, money-wise, just in general. They've got this gigantic... Monstrosity of a wedding to pay for. They're in debt to god only knows how many other people. They're still technically in the middle of in the middle of the, of a war. It's it's just a mess all around. So Tywin understands that greater need, but I love the line too, where Cersei's like, "What what happened to Jamie? Are we doing everything that we can?" And 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 and, Ty- and Tywin's like, "Well, when Catelyn Stark kidnapped Tyrion, what did I do?" And she's like, "You started a war." And she's like, "I did." And if I'm willing to do that for that lecherous little stump, I believe is how he refers to Tyrion. Imagine I, yeah. what I'd be willing to do <laughs> for Jaime! I'm like, yeah. Jesus Christ! What the? And it's also
1: he, Tywin also talks uh, Cersei down, like uh, basically yeah. says, you know, I, I've always. Uh, Hated the fact that you think you're smarter than you're Yeah, are. Well, some, you something a more, like, more so along
0: the lines of like yes. you're a lot less smart than you think you are. She's like, Marjorie's gotten her claws all in Joffrey. It's like, good, maybe she'll control him in a way that you didn't, you know? And she's like, Maybe you should like control her. But like, I love kind of the bar back and forth. Like, Tywin, Tywin does like kind of throw her a bone a little bit, where he's like, All right, fair enough. Counsel. Before he like kind of takes her down a peg and kind of makes her understand just how out of her depth he is. Again. Not a whole lot of stuff, but slowly sowing the seeds for what's going to come with the disaster of Cersei ruling, you know, ultimately later on or attempting to rule as we come to find out. So that's really it for like the majority of the stuff. So now now we can get into the good stuff in this episode, because, again, the last 10 to 15 minutes of this episode friggin bangers like bangers from minute one to minute zero. So we start north of the wall. Um, again, the Knights watch their back at Craster's. It's, it's a, it's a humorous scene. Of course, Grant and Ed shoveling shit, but Rast, Oh, Rast continuing to sow the seeds of doubt where Rast is like, um, What's it called? You know, continuing to complain about Craster, saying that he's got more food, that he's not letting them on, that he'll cut their throats in their sleep, and also that the Lord Commander has led them astray. He's like, he led us of the fist of the first man, and look what happened. You know, basically, again, it, it, we're continuing to see the seeds of doubt continuing to fracture the Night's Watch. Again, they are out of their debt. They're trying to get back to the wall. They're starving. They don't know what's going on, just in general. You know, they're just trying to survive. Uh, there's been a lot of doubt that's been thrown on them, Right. And uh, you know, Gren and Ed are still remaining loyal, but again, it's precious few of them that are left that are actually still loyal to Mormont and his cause. Sam is once again continuing to buddy buddy up to Gilly, but Gilly is not having any of it. Gilly's whole thing is it's like, yeah, Look, doesn't
1: she go? I don't want your stupid. I don't want your stupid. At some bimble. point, <laughs> it's
0: like I don't have time for like childhood memorabilia yeah. in general. It's like I have my son to worry about, and my only priority right now is keeping him alive because to, uh, because for all we know tomorrow he could be given to the White Walkers, you know. And she knows that to some extent. But we cut to inside, and oh, man, like, just, Pat, give us the breakdown of this scene. Because it is, from the minute, uh, obviously, again, like, the, like we have the back and forth between Craster and Mormont, which is amazing. Again, like, Mormon saying, we'll move on once we've better, our, you know, once we've healed our wounded. And he's like, oh... Uh, you know, if it were up to me, you know, leave him here. I'll take care of them. You know, best be out with, like, Craster does not want them here. But that's, again, there's a second motive here. Craster knows that, like, these guys are hungry. These guys are impatient. These guys are miserable. And he, and he also knows that they outnumber him heavily. So, yeah,
1: I, you know, it's it's one of those things, like, I, you know, I was talking about it last episode. Like, uh, the only reason why Craster let them in is because he saw a mutiny on their faces immediately. And right. uh, he didn't, you know, he was hoping that they would come in, they would have a good meal, a good rest, and move on, and you know that he wouldn't have to deal with them. But unfortunately, um, you know, it just like it gets to the the point. Um, yeah, really where quick. these men decide to to mutiny. Yeah, I mean it also doesn't um, help
0: too that they just had a funeral for a brother, and it didn't help that Mormont couldn't even remember where he was from. That definitely didn't do Rass any favors. Just in general, like Rass, Rass is done with the Lord Commander. He is pissed off. He's miserable. You can tell because Rass was the guy, and he's the one that was like the only guy that wouldn't get on John's side when when obviously they were first bring kind of bringing Sam into the fold. Just in general, and they kind of had to use Ghost in order to get him on their side. And Rass has obviously been trying to go after Sam. You know, just, you know, just as something to, like, kind of pick him, you pick on him. You know, you, you can tell Rast is a bully figure. And the problem is, is that in this type of area, the bully figures turn to killing quickly. Well, Obviously, when we see Carl Tannen come in and be like, whose throat are you going to cut, old man? And, it, it, again, it just it so quickly devolves. It so quickly devolves. It devolves into an argument. Next thing you know, Carl, you know, Tannen baits Craster easily. And, again, it's this old very old, very heavy set, out of shape, fat guy with an axe versus, as we later find out about Carl, one of the most experienced cutthroats in King's Landing. You know, he calls him a bastard, he charges him, pulls out the knife, jams it right in his chin. It's, it's a brutal fucking kill, right? Um, Mormont tries to say something about, oh, you've been you've cursed us with the gods and everything, and again, some very subtle foreshadowing here where Mormont quickly brings up the um the whole. Uh, what's it called, the uh, the God's right thing or whatever, where basically the idea being that in the olden days, in medieval times, the whole thing is that if you were accepted as a guest under someone's roof, you would be protected from murder or betrayal or death under guest right privileges, essentially, is the word that you go for. And Mormon brings that up. Obviously, again, that's famously brought up later on when the phrase famously betray and murder Robin, Robin Catelyn at the Red Wedding, definitely, because that's another thing that's seriously broken. And Bran even brings up a story in the finale of uh, you know, as to somebody in their past who suffered from that same fate uh, when they broke guest rights privileges and murdered somebody under their roof, which is that, um, what's it called? But of course, Tannen bring, brings up there are no laws beyond the wall, old old man. Um, Mormont, oh poor Mormont. Mormont does not know when to quit when he's ahead. He brings up his sword and Ras stabs him, and it's a full-on mutiny. You know, Gren attacks Carl. Uh, Ed gets into a fight with the other brother and it's just pandemonium. Night's watch brother. Fighting yeah, night's really? Watch brother. Who,
1: who survives this? It basically I don't know. Uh, well, we Sam know Gren- and Gilly. We know that right? we know that
0: Sam and Gilly do. Gren and Ed do because they come back next season. Famously, and Dolores Ed makes it all the way up until the battle with the night's watch in the long night in the last in the last episode. Gren famously dies in the battle of the wall next season in season four, but they make it. But yeah, it's I have no idea. aside from the brothers who survived with Tannen and Rast who are murdered by John and his party when they go north to avenge Mormont in the next season. I I don't know, like, what's going on, but the whole thing is Sam knows exactly what happens here. He runs to Gilly. He's like, look, Craster's dead. We got to go now or else we're going to die, and they run off into the night. It's an amazingly well well done scene. I think, again, the writing up to it, the tension is fantastic. Once the action actually breaks out, again, it's very small and clustered, but you can just tell. It's one of those things where it's like you can just tell pandemonium all around, and that's something that Game of Thrones, it's, it's one of the action sequences that early Game of Thrones, I should say, did really really well i still remember this being one of the most harrowing scenes in the book because this scene also came after there was funnily enough so in the book after the initial attack at the fist of the first men the night's watch brothers are on their way back right sam is actually being helped out by another nicer brother who's not brought up in the show at all who helps who attempts to carry him and then they get attacked by white walkers again and there's even more brothers who die um what's it called who, who die there you know and so, so you have that, which also leads into the whole, uh, you know, kind of rebellion at Crassers in general that results in Mormont's death. And the way that Mormon dies too is really fucking gruesome too. Where Mormon, for a second there, you think that Crass, that Rass didn't hit anything vital because he picks, grabs Rass by the throat, slams him against the wall, and seems to be strangling him, doing well. But all of a sudden, he just coughs blood all up, realizes goes down, then Ross is on him, like stabbing him multiple times. You don't know where, but it's just one of those things where there's a reason why they keep Mormon off screen because they you can just tell, it is it is brutal, definitely. like Two absolutely brutal deaths for this episode as well. We haven't even gotten to the main one. So, uh, yes, uh, Eric Locke is the one who ends up getting killed, getting his neck snapped by Horror in Season 4 when they go back to avenge um, the rest of the brothers. So, now we cut to the aria scene and the riverlands which again this again it's it's another it's another transition and, int- and for into next episode, but this scene, oh, this scene is oh
1: well, yeah, it's basically a trial of the Hound, you know? Right. It's, you know, they, they try to get him on other causes, like, hey, right. uh, didn't you do this? And it's like, no, I never did that. You know, I or, I, I did that in the name of Joffrey. Right. Like, that was that was my job, and, you know, what Well, am what's, I what's interesting about how it, do, well, you know, princely things. Well,
0: what's interesting about how it first starts off is it starts off with Thoros and Angi, First, they're trying to just sling it on the on him that oh because he's a higher born person and everything. That's what you know that we're we're trying to take it out on you. And the Hound is like, uh, you're no better than me. You're just a bunch of killers and uh, and Smits and Tannins. You think you're fighting for glory and all that. Then Thoros is bringing up everything about the Targaryen babes and the Mummers Ford and everything. And the Hound is like, look. If you got something to say to me or kill me, get on with it. But don't call me a murderer for stuff that I didn't do. And don't try to place me in places where I wasn't there because I wasn't at the Mummer's Ford and I wasn't there when they killed the Targaryen babes. That was my brother. Well, yeah. and you he, know he that said they're basically he, trying to yeah. hold the hound. Culpable for his brother's activities. Basically, they're they're, they're essentially exactly. being like, okay, we don't have, we can't get the game that we want, but but hey, we got the other game who's done maybe half as much bad shit, you know. So hey, better, well, that's one
1: of the things. Like he basically tells them, like you know, I never seen a Targaryen baby, <laughs> you know, like yeah, like I, I don't never know seen one. He was one, in so. King's
0: Landing at the time when yeah. obviously the when obviously the whole uh, sack of King's Landing happened originally. So
1: so no matter what, like you know, whatever mock trial they have him on, like we. We really want to get you. Uh, nothing is sticking. Like Clegane is basically fighting off all the accusations, right. and the only one that sticks is when Arya stands up right. and says, "Hey." You know, what about the butcher's boy? Yeah. Uh, and everyone and jumps on and, and basically says, yeah, you know, hey, yeah. that's that's that funny. Affects-
0: that, I, I guess I should say something about just how efficient the brotherhood is when Arya is the one that actually has to point out the one legit thing that the hound did. But it's also ironic because she would be the only one to be able to place it. But again, we also get the introduction to probably one of my favorite secondary Game of Thrones characters. And that would, of course, be Don Dondarian, another famous Game of Thrones recast. He was portrayed in for one episode by a different actor in season one, but he is now portrayed by Richard Dormer, who portrays him this season. And then when he makes his comeback in season six, portrays him until the end of the show, Beric Dondarrion, a character who famously, um, you know, was a Stormlands Lord, served under Robert Baratheon, fought with Robert Baratheon, um, was famously sent by Ned along with Thoros in order to originally, you know, bring out justice to the mountain back in season one, before the whole war started, before obviously the rebellion in King's Landing happened. And, uh, uh, obviously, you know, we saw the kind of the side switch and the brotherhood was, you know, kind of became the outlaws and the criminals when they were originally sent to dole out the justice. And even though it's not explicitly said here, we obviously learn later on that Barrick again, has rededicated himself to the Lord of Light because famously in the however much time it's been since when he originally departed King's Landing versus now, he has famously been killed six times. And, and we don't find that out until later on, but he's been killed six times. He got an eye patch in place of an eye that got stabbed. He's got a mark around his neck from where he was once hung. He's been stabbed. Like, beheaded. Well, I don't know about beheaded. But the point being is this guy has died and come back to life a lot. And it's interesting because um, Beric and the Hound, they definitely have some background. They have some camaraderie, right? The Hound knew both him and Thoros from his time spending King's Landing. But this is it, – it, it's interesting kind of the relationship that's formed here where, again, the Hound and Beric have are kind of two sides of the same coin. Where, again, the Hound only does what he do- – how they start off. Like, the Hound only did what he did – you know, obviously from his place of employment, but also because, again, he kind of delighted in the killing and Barrack, you know, kind of views himself as like this Robin Hood, this protector of the innocent figure. But it's very clear that it's very unorganized. Beric probably doesn't leave the cave too often. He probably doesn't go out with Thoros and the rest of them too often. He doesn't really know what he's doing. They, you know, they know they just got a big figure with the hound, but they didn't, but they don't actually really have anything on him until Arya brings up the whole Butcher's Boy thing from the second episode of the show. And you think for a moment, it's like, holy shit, is the hound actually going to get his? and it's this really awesome setup for what's gonna happen next as far as, okay, trial by fire time, literally, you know?
1: Well, yeah, you know, obviously we'll talk about this uh, when the fight happens, which uh, if if I remember correctly, it was only an episode away. Um, you know, I, I think I don't think it waits uh, too too much longer, yeah. but
0: let's just say the um, next episode is one that i'm I've very much been looking forward to.
1: Yeah, so it, the main thing is, you know, uh, set, this setup and the whole idea that he's going to do a trial by combat, um, you know, it sets up the whole idea that, um, you know, of the Lord of Light at this point. You know, it's it's one of those things like the end result is going to show us m- that the Lord of Light is not just Melisandre, it's not just the, you know, the Red Witch, uh, that it exists across the world. Um, you know, and here's another pocket, you know, uh, that exists of it. And so I think that's the most interesting thing. It kind of allows the Hound, um, to be morally set free from like previous, you know, possible wrongs that he's been a part of. It allows him to be, um, more of a moral character. And the fact that he and Aria, uh, start to roam the land and, uh, he protects her, and ultimately, he he'll he'll try to protect uh, you know um, you know either either you know Stark uh, you know woman you know S- uh, Sansa or Arya um, you know it kind of sends him on that trajectory of getting as far away from the Lannisters as possible and and really doing the right thing um, you know it, it, he's on that sort of uh, you know that storyline that progression. Uh, where he's now going to fight on the, the side of good, so to speak.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's definitely the beginning of that arc. Like I said, season three for me really is where a lot of the arcs for some of our favorite characters in the later seasons, like Jamie the Hound, um, what's it called? Theon. All their arcs really truly do begin here. You know, these were at the point where all these characters they were kind of just setups, right? Theon, Jamie, the hound, just for example. A lot of those characters were kind of just background characters. They didn't have super much to do in those first couple seasons. But this season is really where we, where we get to know them personally. You know, Sam as well. Um, Eric, I love Eric's comment. Kiss by fire. Uh that, yeah, that's a cool one. It's the bath episode, basically, one in an actual bath, one in a cave. Yeah, pretty much. Because next episode, again, it's it's John and the Egret's bath scene, it's Jamie and Brand's bath scene when they're in. It's the Carstark Revolution um, at, at River Run. And then it is and then obviously it's the trial by fire. Uh, literally, with, with Barrack and the Hound. It's, it's all those episode events are in next episode. And I'm super looking forward to it. We got one more event, obviously, that wraps up this episode. And oh man, Pat. I, I had been waiting for this moment, both in my original run of the show. I have been looking forward to this moment, like when we started this rewatch. This is there's an argument to be made that this is top five moments of the entire show. It's so funny, too, because they, they, this this moment is so awesome that they literally replicated almost beat for beat in epi- in the Battle of the Bastards later on in Season 6 when Daenerys unleashes the dragons in the full force. They burn down the ships, and then obviously when they're coming towards Westeros and the dragons are flying overhead. But the seeds are sowed here where, again, it's the it's the closing minutes of the episode. Daenerys arrives in Astapor. She's ready to make the deal with the slavers. She's got the dragon. She's giving it over to him. And oh, and again, like she pulls the, the biggest bait and switch switcheroo ever. Where again, Missandei is translating all this stuff, and you're, you can just tell, like Daenerys has had enough of this guy. Like Daenerys is not listening to this guy. She doesn't care. She's ready to go. She's locked and loaded. She makes she hands it the dragon. She makes sure you can see the looks written over Jor- Jorah and Barrison's faces. They're like, this is a mistake. And she makes sure she knows. She's like, it's done. Are they mine? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yours. But Drogon's still not responding. He's not responding. And so she obviously, you know, orders them in Valyrian. Or oh, no, she doesn't order them in Valyrian. She orders them in a different language at first. Then she speaks in Valyrian to Krasniss, revealing that she's been unable to understand him the entire time, All while he was throwing yeah, those it, awful expletives it, at her. Yeah,
1: it's her native uh, tongue, you know, yeah. she says. But, she's like, I'm, but, I have
0: the blood of old Valyria in me. Of course I know yeah. how to speak Valyrian. So,
1: so I think this is one of the bigger things, is like she's handed this whole thing, and it's like, yeah, they're in my control. And she does the whole thing where she tests. It's like, hey... You know, unsullied uh, march forward and they take a couple steps and it's like, halt, you know, and she's testing her power. And now that she has it, um, she essentially, you know, makes it clear that she understood the whole game the whole time. Uh, but then she just gives an order to the unsullied. It's like, You know, kill all
0: the masters, kill the soldiers, kill everybody, and it's so weird too because even though I know, I, I but again I don't know because in hindsight, obviously after having watched the finale, it's crazy to me how this scene was so warped from its inception where. In the moment, we're all rooting, we're cheering. She's like, yeah, kill the slavers, kill all the evil people, kill all the pe- kill the guy, that stupid asshole that was hurling all those expletives at you because thought that you couldn't understand him, you know? Like, when Drogon burns that guy in the moment, it's fucking awesome. And he's coming around and he's burning all the banners and the Unsullied are killing all the slavers, and you're cheering because you're like, yeah, this is good triumph thing. But, again, it's one of the things where even with how awfully executed the finale is, there are still the seeds there of greatness where now, because of what happens in that finale... Awesome sequences like this are totally reverted in 180, where now you're seeing them in an entirely different light. Where that shot of the of, of the you know the downward sh- the upward shot of Daenerys, the low, you know the low shot of Daenerys, as the dragonfire is going up around her with Drogon lighting shit up around her, that, that it has a totally different meaning. In this well,
1: you know, yeah. I I feel like you know after watching the entire series almost again, it's it's yeah. like you're almost like uh, um, oh no. The fact the fact is, Dracaris is one of the Deus Ex Machina's of this yep. show. Like any anytime that she's in trouble, it's like Dracaris and yep. and like nine times out of ten, it, it yep. saves her. Sometimes um, it's
0: awesome. Sometimes it's like okay, r- really.
1: Yeah, it, but it, you know, in its sense, like it, it totally makes sense because the dragons are, are the power that she, uh, you know, relies on, and and that's what gives right. her her advantage over everything else. Uh, but it's it's almost like uh, her plot lines are somewhat razor thin, and the dragons literally are the only thing that she relies on. So right. it, it's it's one of those things, like sometimes a moment like this where she's just like Jakharis, mic drop, it's over. Um, you know, it, it it's one of those things where. Uh, the show should have been a little more uh, careful uh, to not overdo that because we just saw her do the same trick with the warlocks in the last season. Right. And now she's doing it here with the, you know, and it's like, Anytime that she gets into real trouble, she just said Drakaris and Gold. I mean I
0: guess the good thing I guess the good thing is on. that I believe if I'm not remembering if I'm remembering we don't hear Drakaris again until Battle of the Bastards. And we only get it again in you know the ones in season six through eight. But I believe that this is really like the first major time that we hear it before the Battle of the bastards but again the big takeaway again is I'm like my only thing here my only real point is I'm like okay like she was all about freeing the slaves and the uh, soldiers but like she had them kill the soldiers too like the soldiers she could have given the soldiers a chance to run like they were they, they were probably the soldiers really are not that much higher up than the unsullied just in general. but the other thing too obviously the point to take away is the fact that she famously after you know the massacre is done she famously tells the death of the unsullied she's like yeah you're all free. Um, you, will you fight with me as a, as free men, not as slaves? And, um, well, you know, it's the Spartacus moment and she's very much like, okay, any man who does not want to fight is free to go home, but they're all with her. They're all massively indebted to her for, um, you know, for freedom, obviously. And again, you get this really cool moment in the next episode, briefly, where we meet gray worm for the first time, um, where we, where again, they express kind of how, and, uh, you know, in, in debt they are to her. And for me, The big moment, obviously, in the moment, not obviously, you know, ignoring the next couple seasons. The big moment for me here is the fact that this is truly, again, where her identity is born. This is okay. After all the abuse and all the harshness that she's suffered, all the misdirects that she suffered in the first two seasons, this is finally her moment. She's finally coming into her own. She's finally really starting to break the wheel um, you know, as far as like breaking down the systems that have held like kind of the lower classes as being oppressed for so long, ultimately, this is that moment. And in the moment, it's freaking awesome. But that's a problem with revolutionaries that I find is that revolutionaries usually are only at their best when the revolution is actually happening. And once it's over, you find them pretty much settling into kind of a lot of those same positions that they were trying so hard to break down in the first place. It's kind of yeah. funny how well, that works in hindsight.
1: This, this particular moment you know, fulfills her as a, you know, thoughtful and effective leader. Like she basically uh, planned this ruse all by herself. You know, her advisors were in the dark and basically, you know, she knew when to stay, you know, uh, stay steady with the plan and how to execute it. And, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of this episode, basically she has gone from, you know, just that young girl who had some, you know, a random claim on the throne to a viable leader, uh, with an actual claim to the throne and maybe the intelligence to actually do something about it.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's again, again, bringing back, bringing it back to my point above, and an absolutely amazing three sequences to cap off a pretty slow and deliberately paced episode. Again, it's, it's another one of those episodes that I talked about in the first season where it seems to be more so character focused, but the problem is the awesome, like. Big story moments that happened in this episode are so freaking awesome, but they don't quite make up for the rest of the episode ultimately. So that was it. That was our coverage of season three, episode four. And now his watch is ended. We'll be back next week for the midpoint again we are just banging these episodes out just in general, because next week is the midpoint of season three, season three, episode five kiss by fire. One of my favorite episodes of the show. One of, in my opinion, the best episodes of the show is a lot of big moments that happen that are happening and it's all happening next week. Pat, Where can the good people find you on the interwebs?
1: Hey, listen, Dom, uh, you can find me on the Talking TV network here, you know, just uh, Talking Thrones doing this uh, thing. And, you know, again, I've been saying this since the very beginning, but uh, I do have an Instagram at Patrick W. Huber, and I sometimes dream of posting on it. But (laughs) uh, uh, one day you might actually uh, see that dream become a reality. So, uh, you know, hey, maybe take a look there if you're interested.
0: Yeah, maybe. Definitely. And of course, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Movie Nerd Reviews. But more importantly, Facebook and Instagram at Talkin TV Podcast, where I post every single day, twice a day. Again, we've got so much content for you guys coming this week. We've got our delightful Halloween Kills review this Monday, this Wednesday. We've also got the wrap-up to our Halloween Shocktober event, first-time watch series. Where we will be ranking all 12 Halloween movies Oh, man, this is a ranking that I have been looking forward to. And it's always keep coming back for more incredible content on yeah, the talk. The, the
1: one TV with Buster Rhymes is the one. Oh, it's like amazing. Best, right?
0: Oh, it's amazing. Oh, I <laughs> love that movie so much. So much. Uh, Pat, You, I, I, I need everybody to tune into this list just to understand because I, you guys think that my rankings have been infuriating. You guys are not ready. This is going to be the most infuriating ranking. For you guys that I have ever done just in general. And I cannot freaking wait. Because like the Fast and Furious movies. I would seen all those movies before. I kind of had an idea. It was mostly just kind of ironing out. What the official order was for the franchise. But this freaking one. Oh, man. You you guys think I've been filled with hot takes before? Heads are going to roll. So definitely tune in this coming Wednesday for the ranking of yeah, every year, single Years Halloween of research
1: have gone into Dom's uh, review here. Yes, so absolutely. take yeah. a look.
0: Absolutely years of research. I've totally d- dedicated years of my life, all of the last four since I watched the first Halloween movie. But, of course, continue to support this channel by clicking the subscribe button, clicking the like button, clicking the bell next to it. That way you guys get notified every time we put up new content. As always, people remember 12 seasons at a short film and watch more fucking movies. We'll see you guys next week.
1: And our recap has ended.